Praise God. Never tell Alan secrets about your past. Alan. I was up early watching the Ashes and the Springboks last night. Quite sad. We need to bring Butch James back. Can I get an amen? No amens. Okay. Well, I am from Neisner. However, I am a Shark supporter. So we can still be friends. I support the Sharks. It's amazing to be here in Durban. Like um, Alan said, I live in Germany, a part of an um, organization called Awakening Europe. And basically what Awakening Europe is, we're a group of about 10 to 15 people, most of us under the age of 29 years old, 30 years old. And what we do is we essentially hire out stadiums in Europe and preach the gospel. And some of the nations that people believe are the most hopeless nations. To the point of view, to the point where the nations we're going to, our biggest opposition is often the pastors. They say, what you're doing is impossible, it'll never happen. Our first event was in Nuremberg, Germany, and a man named Ben Fitzgerald and Todd White were standing on a field during a, like a tourist event. And the tour guide was talking about how Hitler stood on this piece of land and commissioned his army to go all over Europe and take Europe. And while they were standing there, Ben looked at Todd and said, bro, I just had a vision. I just saw a picture. So Ben explains what the picture is, and Todd looks back at him and says, bro, I just had exactly the same vision. I just saw exactly the same thing. And what they saw was thousands of people coming from all over Europe to this place and going back on fire for God. So that's what they saw. Well, I mean, that's great, but now what do you do with that? You know what I mean? You've seen this vision. So Ben decides, I'm going to hire the stadium on the piece of land where we've seen this vision. And it's a large soccer stadium that seats about 50,000 people. Now, if you've ever looked into hiring stadiums, stadiums aren't cheap to hire. And Ben didn't have any money. But all he had was a word from God. So he decided to go for it. And a miracle, about a year later, they had an event that cost over 900,000 euros. Almost 15,000, almost 15 million rand. And over 27,000 people came from all over Europe. Nobody knew who we were, no one knew what was going on, but over 27,000 people came. And the power with that is what I do in the event is I oversee the outreach, so everybody has to go preach the gospel. Nobody gets away with not being an evangelist. We don't believe in that, it's not biblical, so nobody gets away with it. Everybody has to go out and preach the gospel. So think about the power of over 15,000 people going onto the streets at the same time. We will literally have people come up to us, I spoke to a man in Stockholm after the event, a Muslim man. I just said to him, God loves you so much. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? My whole life no one's told me about Jesus, but you're the fourth person this weekend to tell me about Jesus. <laughs> so that's the power of certain people. So that's a little bit about what I do. I live in Germany, right on the border of France and Switzerland, and we travel around equipping churches and putting on these larger events. But it's amazing to be in South Africa. I have some amazing friends here. Anthony, one of my good friends I met at Bethel in second year. He's an amazing man, and Levi, too, did school with him. The Blackmans and my sister. Can't forget my sister. She's, she's pretty awesome. Okay, how about we read a Bible verse? That way, no matter how badly I preach, you still got a verse. So you can't complain because you still got a verse to go home with. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is one of my favorite books in the Bible because of this. John literally got the opportunity to walk with Jesus. That's a pretty crazy experience. Like he actually walked with Jesus for three and a half years, got to hear what Jesus taught, got to hear Jesus rebuke people. He got to see Jesus like move in these crazy miracles. He, 
it would have been a crazy experience, to say the least, to actually walk with King Jesus, to walk with God in the flesh on earth. It would have been crazy scary. I wouldn't have been the most excited because Jesus is quite an intense person on earth. He says to his disciples, he's like, how long shall I waste my time with you, you perverse generation? I would be hurt if God said that to me. You know what I mean? It's God and he's saying that to me. So John literally walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And by the time he's writing 1 John to the church, it's about 90 years after Jesus has died on the cross. Are you with me? So Jesus has died on the cross. 90 years later, you picture John, who's roughly 100, 105 years old now. And he's too old to go to the churches. And he's writing this final letter back to the church. He's almost summarizing the gospel. Now, if you've been in church for any time at all, you would know that a lot of things change in the church. You hear crazy beliefs, you see crazy lifestyles, this guy's teaching this, someone else is teaching this, you're like, I don't understand how those go together. I've only been in the church my whole life, which is not very long, but if you've been in church for any time at all, you would know that a lot of things change, and it's sometimes hard to keep up with all these doctrines that are changing, and that's where, that's where John's at when he's writing this letter. Over the, imagine the first 90 years of Christianity, how much would have changed? You've literally seen Jesus, and now for 90 years, you've watched everything else happen. You've watched all these different people living all these different lives and teaching the stuff that you never heard God himself teach. Right? He's literally seen it all, and he writes this letter, and I feel like it's a letter that's really important to the church right now, because it it simplifies the gospel, it brings it back to the root of what's actually important, because he sees this all going on, and he's too old to go to the church, so he writes a final letter to the church as a whole. And that's what I want to read today. It's 1 John 2, verse 6. This is what he says. He says, He who abides in Jesus, he who abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Is it up there? Perfect. He who says he lives in Jesus ought to live just as Jesus lived. Pretty convicting verse. But it actually summarizes what Christianity is. He's like, I've been seeing how you guys are living. I've been seeing what you're doing. And the truth is, what a real Christian is, is someone that looks like Jesus. And it's perfect for the church. Sorry, this headset. Does it look good on me, by the way? Does it suit me? It does, thank you. I got a yes back there. Thank you. Okay, let's pray. Perfect time to pray. God, I thank you that you're here this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would have your way. That, God, it wouldn't be about me or anybody here, but it would be about you. That you would reveal the lives we believe in, God. And you would reveal yourself more to us. And Holy Spirit, you would have your way in leading us to Jesus. Leading us into all truth, God. That our life would look like your life. And because we say we abide in you, that we would look like you. And we all agree together that the Sharks would win the Curry Cup next year. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Oh, it's a miracle. The table's gone. Let's pray again. God, no, that one can stay. Some walking space. I grew up my whole life in the church. That's why I'm so passionate about this verse. Because I literally grew up my whole life in the church with amazing parents. Some of the most amazing parents I've ever seen or experienced or seen. Like just in action. Honestly, I have incredible parents. If you've met them, you will know what I mean. And even though I grew up my whole life in the church, I grew up knowing what it was like to heal the sick. I grew up prophesying. All that was normal. In my house, which is a great privilege, honestly. It's not normal for most kids growing up. But the one thing, even though I was in church for 18 years, I never was told ever that I had to share the gospel. It was never part of Christianity to me. It never even like, appeared to me that it was what I was supposed to do. To the point of view, of, like, I accepted fear as who I was. 
So what I would say is, I'm not an evangelist, I'm shy, and that was enough to get away with it. Which, looking back, really makes me laugh, because the Bible says God has not given you a spirit of fear, which means that fear is a spirit, it means it's a demon spirit, and I would fight for this demon spirit to be my identity. And a lot of us do. We're like, I'm shy. That's literally saying that demon is mine. You can't have it. I literally fought for a demon spirit. I'm supposed to be, gosh, I'm shy. I'm afraid of people. It's like literally saying, I want that demon. It's mine. You can't have it. Which is crazy looking back. That's literally what I do. I'm not a Christian. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I'm not supposed to share the gospel. I'm not an evangelist. Which is actually a crazy excuse because the Bible says he gave the office of an evangelist, the office of a prophet, etc., for the equipping of the saints. So the reason why he gave evangelists was to teach everybody how to evangelize. I wasn't a teacher, but I'd teach people things. Right? I wasn't a prophet, but I'd prophesy. But I'm not an evangelist. I won't evangelize. Right? So that's my, so I'm not preaching the gospel at all. Suddenly I go to Bethel. I'm barely walking with the Lord. I'm living in sin. I, I probably lied on my application to go to Bethel. Honestly. I can't remember, but I probably did. So I'm living in sin. I go to Bethel. I'm not preaching the gospel. Suddenly God starts putting people in my life that preach the gospel. At this point, I didn't even enjoy church. And if you don't enjoy church, this is often why? Because you think you're coming to church to be right with God. Instead of coming to church because you are right with God. I've got good news. Coming to church doesn't make you right with God. It literally can't. Because if you say coming to church can make you right with God, that means you have to do all of the other 614 laws. Seriously. You're either saved through the law and works or through the cross. You can't have both. So if you're going to say coming to church makes you right with God, good luck with the other 613. Which isn't condemning, it's actually very freeing. Because coming here doesn't make you right with God. Reading your Bible certainly doesn't make you right with God. And praying doesn't either. The Bible says in Galatians 2.21, If righteousness comes through works, Christ died in vain. So if righteousness comes through something you do, Jesus didn't need to die. Sorry, let me pull this up a little bit. There we go. Got it. Because who am I to say I can do it by myself? I can't. But that means this, I get to come to church because I am right with God. Then suddenly I don't have to hate being in worship. I don't have to hate listening to the message. That's what I used to think. Because it, it used to be like literally I'm wrong with God. I struggled through two hours on a Sunday morning. The bad thing is my dad was preaching. <laughs> and he's a good preacher. I just didn't want to be at church. But then after Sunday afternoon, it was the best day of the week. We went and got coffee. I was right with God. What did you do yesterday? I went to church. I'm now right with God. And I hated church because of it. But I'm free of something. Nothing you do makes you more right with God. And that doesn't mean you can sin. It means that you won't want to sin. But what you can't think is what you do makes you right with God because then you have to do it all by yourself. So I didn't understand that. So I hated going to church until I, until I found out I was righteous before God. Because look, okay, let's read another verse. Some of you aren't sure yet. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to hit this. Why don't we? We're already here. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Is it up there? Not yet. No problem. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You with me? So Jesus had never sinned before, right? 
He was completely human, completely God, and he literally never sinned. Literally never sinned once in his life. Okay? See, this is what it says. He, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. How did Jesus become sin? God made him sin. He, God, for he made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus sin. So Jesus never sinned to become sin. But we think we have to act righteous to become righteous. He didn't sin to become sin. But we think we have to act right with God to become right with God. Not true. You believe you're right with God before you start living right with God. If you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace, you'll live in sin the rest of your life. Because you believe you're a sinner, effectively. If you believe you're sanctified by grace, you won't live in sin anymore. And I've got good news. You don't have to live in sin. People think that it's impossible to be free of sin, and they use 1 John chapter 1 as their reference for that, which is quite bizarre, actually, because when the Bible was written, there was no chapters. Okay, you with me? There was no chapters. It was letters. Like when you write an email to your friend, you don't write it in chapter 1, 2, and 3. When they put it in the Bible, they put it into chapters. And the whole passage that says you can't live without sin, if you read the very next verse, 1 John 2, verse 1, it says, I write this so that you may not sin. And then it goes on to say, and if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. If, not when. See, I would have proposed, if sin was killed on the cross, why do you believe you have to keep living in sin? He who knew no sin became sin. And sin was crucified and buried, yet we believe we still have to live it. But it's actually dead on the cross. Because it wasn't just Jesus that died on the cross, it was actually sin. He who knew no sin became sin. What happened to sin was crucified on the cross and buried. So sin is actually dead to us. If you believe you have to live in sin, you, you will live in sin the rest of your life. I'm not going to argue with you. It's true, you will. You just don't have to. Which is so freeing. So that was my life. And what happened was when I went to Bethel, God put people in my life, and it wasn't because I was doing things right. It wasn't because I was seeking Him. Nothing really. But He put these amazing leaders in my life. And one of them was Ben Fitzgerald. He was pastoring for a year at Bethel. And everywhere we would go, He would preach the gospel. Casting out demons, healing the sick on the streets, meth addicts on his couch, everything. And I was just like taken back by it. And he never told me, you have to do it. He never told me that. But when I saw that, I got excited because I was like, there's more to Christianity than attending church? What? Where has this been all my life? You mean I can move in power like Jesus moved in power? You mean I can see healings through my life? So now I'm like, this is awesome. But I'm still shy. I'm afraid of people. God made me this way. God made me with a spirit of fear. That's what I believe. So now, I'm living with eight people at the time in this house, and I have no time alone. So the only time I can have secret time is by walking into my clothing cupboard and closing the door and lying under my clothes. So I would literally go down and make tea with five roses. I'd bring five roses from South Africa. Praise God for five roses. That's an amen. I haven't got an amen like that all morning. Oh, no, I'm choking. So I would have my five roses, my Bible open on my chest, and my little iPhone playing music so I could worship. And my roommate would come in and grab clothes above me and like, sorry, sorry, and move out, close the door. And I would just act like I couldn't see him because I'm just so lost, you know. It's quite awkward. But one day after about two months, 
of just seeking God and saying, God, you know what, I've, I'm, I'm seeing this lifestyle. I want to live like Jesus lives. There has to be more to Christianity. I'm afraid of people. Will you help me? And just praying. And after about, it was between a month and two months. I can't remember exactly. The Holy Spirit asked me a question. And it was just a thought that went through my mind, but I knew it was the Holy Spirit because I'd never thought of this question. And if I had a choice, I wouldn't want to think of this question because it challenged me. Just, I knew it wasn't mine. And from this moment that he asked me the question, it radically changed my life. Because about three months after that, every day on the streets I was preaching the gospel. To the extent of where second and third years at Bethel would come and say, can you take me on the streets? And I would just say Yes. They, were, they had no idea that I was just learning. I had no idea what I was doing. But it was hilarious to watch because I was doing things I wouldn't do now. But So that's three months afterwards. You fast forward a year, I'm literally putting meth addicts on my couch. I'm 20 years old at the time. I'm putting 50-year-old meth addicts on my couch, loving them, getting them off of meth, taking care of their finances, literally being a father to them. You fast forward two years and I'm standing on a stage in front of 15,000 people commissioning them to go and preach the gospel in Prague. And it literally all started with this one question that God asked me. And the question he asked me is this. He said, what's more important to you? Your fear of man or other people's eternity? What's more important to you? Your fear of man or other people's eternity? And it wasn't condemning. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't want to run from God. He put the ball in my court. It was an answer to prayer. Because we have a free will. It's your choice whether you, you want to care about other people's eternity. Because what we can't believe is this, that when God made people, He chose, you go to hell, you don't have a choice. Because if you read Second Peter chapter 3, it says this, that He wills that none would perish. So you can't believe He wills that none would perish, but He doesn't give people a choice. Those don't go together, you can't. He gave people a free will. He wills that none would perish. So our job is to invite people into an opportunity to, to receive him, to use their free will. But what's complete garbage is that we would walk past people on the streets and say, well, it's God's job to save them because God told you to go and speak to them. See, growing up in church, Mark 16 was my least favorite chapter of the Bible because it confronted my life. I would see going to all the world and preach the gospel, cast out demons and heal the sick, and I would just skip it. Because it was too confronting. I didn't want to do that. I wouldn't embrace it. But the truth is, we have to live that out. Because that's what true Christianity is. Have you ever thought about why when you got saved, you didn't go straight to heaven? Thank you, God. Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't you go straight to heaven? Is it because God wants you to work for 60 years? To build your bank account? To get a better car or a better house? <laughs> Alan just, yeah, never mind. But that's not why. He literally, you still here so you can advance his kingdom. That's why he's still on earth. The saddest thing for a Christian is that church becomes, like while I was taking communion, I was almost in tears just thinking that for so many people worldwide, that bread and wine has become attending church. Like Christianity has become attending church when there's so much more. This is just the start. We, we get to advance the kingdom every day through everything we do. And that's what Christianity is. But the problem is, even when God asked me, I still had fear. But I made a choice today that fear won't control me anymore. And even though now I might still feel fear, it no longer controls me. It no longer is a part of who I am. So what it looked like was just, I would beg my friends, please take me to the supermarket. And they would argue over who got to take me because it looked so terrible. 
they would argue so they could watch me make mistakes. Because it would literally be, hey, Jesus loves you so much. And that was my great evangelism. It looked terrible. Literally, hey, Jesus loves you, walk. And I'd do it to like 10 people, so they would just come and walk behind me and watch. It was great for the friends. But even in that time, there's so much power in saying just Jesus loves you. I remember one time when I was starting, I was walking past a gas station late at night, like one of the worst streets in Reading. I look back now, I'm like, I don't know why I was doing that. Because I went there because there's all these brothels, and I wanted to preach the gospel to the prostitutes. So I'm walking down there, knocking on the doors, didn't have much success trying to preach to them. And I'm walking back to where my car is parked, and I walk past this gas station. And my discernment clicks on, and I see this guy standing next to his car, and I know he's a bad guy. Discernment, right? Discernment. <laughs> My discernment clicks on. I'm like, hey, he's a bad guy. I better stay away from him. So I'm walking and God's like, speak to him. So I'm like, okay, hey! I'm not walking up to him. I'm too young to die. Like long distance is fine right now. So I shout because in America you pump your own gas. So there's no one around. It's like one in the morning. I'm like, hey! Jesus loves you. Then I'm walking. I'm not staying for the response. because I don't. So this guy shouts, hey, come back here. So I'm like, oh. So I'm walking back quoting scripture. You shall live and not die. You shall live and not die. You shall live and not die. And he's standing next to his gas thing. And I've always remembered this, even though it was three years ago. This man looks at me and he says, you know what? What do I need to do to get saved? Because you're the third person today that's just told me Jesus loves me. And it was literally just, Jesus loves you. Never dilute the power of someone just feel like knowing that God loves them. Because through that, he comes into a relationship with Christ and literally just started with saying, Jesus loves you. So what I'll say to you today is, like, start the journey of saying, I don't care what people think. Again, your priorities right in your life. And it starts with you just making a choice of saying, I'm not going to be ruled by the fear of man anymore. I'm going to make a journey to start telling people about Jesus. And there's no age, there's no gender, there's nothing that actually stops you from preaching the gospel. John is 110 years old and he's saying, you have to live a life like Jesus lived. So if you're older than 110, you can come and speak to me. But there's literally no excuse. We all get, and it doesn't have to look like me being super bold and shouting, but it looks like you're just not having the fear of man and loving people how you love people. There's no pressure. But the thing that stops you from loving people is the fear of man. And we can't have that anymore. Let's turn to Mark 2. Mark chapter 2. Are you guys with me? Is this fine? If you get offended while I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you at that time. Seriously, when you get offended is the best time to actually listen. If you don't agree with anything I say, you can email me at alanblackman at gmail.com. Okay, so basically what happens in Mark 2, we've all read the, the um, chapter before, but I'll explain it to you. There's these four men that are carrying someone completely paralyzed on a blanket. Now, this is really back in the day. So there was no stretches. It was probably somebody's blanket from home. And these four men have carried this man. We have no idea how long they've been carrying this man for, basically. But they carry this man completely paralyzed because they've heard about Jesus that's preaching the gospel in this house. So they hear about the miracles that he's doing, the messages that he's preaching. And they're carrying him. And when they get inside of the house, they look at the house and there's absolutely no space. It appears from the outside that there's no space for the man that they have. So even though they know that Jesus is on the inside, and if they can get Jesus to the, 
If they can get this paralyzed man to Jesus, they know he'll be healed. But all that's standing between them is these men. Now, for me, I know most of my life, what I would have said is, God, if you wanted to heal them, you would have made a way. Right? Jesus, if you wanted to heal this man, you knew I was coming. Why don't you make a way? And then I would have turned around. But these men, it's bizarre to me what they do. They decide this amazing idea of let's break the owner's roof. Crazy. Now, we learn it in children's church, and it becomes so normal to us. But think about it. You're having a home cell at your house. Your roof starts to cave in. I wouldn't be excited. My first response would be, Jesus, Jesus, are you taking up an offering for this? The roof isn't going to fix itself. Like, the miracles are great, but, you know, Jesus, come on, offering. He has a cap. Send it around. So the roof is caving in, completely caves in, falling on their heads. And these four men drop this paralyzed man down. Which interesting thing is this. The fact that they could drop a man laying on a blanket down shows you there was enough space in that house. So what we have to do as a church is be careful that we don't make it look like there's no space for other people in our house. Because they made it look like there was no space for other people, but there actually was. Because when they moved, that man could lie down on a blanket. How many of you know a man on a blanket takes more space than someone standing? So that shows you there's actually quite a bit of space. But sometimes us as the church, we can be really good at making it look like we don't have space for other people. And what we become is these self-acclaimed spiritual bouncers. Where we, we, we self-employ ourselves as spiritual bouncers and we think we decide who can come into church and who can't. Oh, you can't come and you don't believe what we believe. Oh, you're getting drunk every night? You shouldn't be at church. Where should they be? In the club. The club's not going to help their drinking problem. We don't have the right to turn people away from church. Obviously, there is the exception if, the, if it's a single person causing a lot of people. I understand like pastoral leaders need to take action sometimes. But as far as someone living in sin, they need to be here before they believe. They'll belong here before they'll believe with you. But we have to make sure from the outside it looks like there's space in our church. Amen? Good. We have to make sure that from the outside, if someone's coming in, they look at this house and they say, there's space there for me. I want to go in there instead of saying it's full, there's nothing there for me. The other thing is this. Often we're so focused here that we don't look out there. They were so focused at looking in and trying to get what they need, what they want, coming to church for themselves, coming to Jesus for themselves, they never thought that maybe there's someone out there that needs to come in. I don't want to be so focused here that I'm not help making space for them to come in. Because not one of them turned their back and said, there's a paralyzed man, let's make space for him to come in. See, our job is to look out and say, who can we bring in? And something also that we know in our lives that if people encounter Jesus, they'll get what they need. But often there's roofs in our life that hold us back. And one of them is the fear of man. So we have the paralyzed man. We have the person that needs to encounter God. And there's things in our life that stand in the way. What length are you willing to go to to bring that person into an encounter with Jesus? What length? They were willing to go to the length of destroying someone's house. What length are you willing to go to to break through the fear of man to bring people into an encounter with Jesus? What length? We have to be willing to say to people, hey, come with me, I'm going to bring you into an encounter with God because God's going to use you to encounter people. He wants to use you. Often what we pray is, God, touch my neighbor. God's already told you to speak to your neighbor. Right? And I understand there's power in prayer because the two, Reinhard Bonnke says the two legs of the gospel are pray and preach, pray and preach. 
But the reality is, if every Christian in South Africa stayed in their house and prayed for 10 years, no one would be saved until someone left their house. The Bible says, Jesus is the head, we are the body, right? He is the head, we are the body. So the head has told the body to go and preach the gospel. Now, wouldn't it be weird if I went to Anthony to shake his hand, and I went like this? Why is it weird? Because the head's doing what the hand is supposed to. Right? Now, he's told the hand to preach the gospel, and we're asking him to go and save people. Your next-door neighbor, you speak to them. You love them. Your family member, you love them. You preach the gospel to them. The person you walk past in the supermarket, you preach the gospel. God wants to use you. And all that's standing in front of you is the fear of man. God wants to use you to touch people. He wants to use you to see signs and wonders through your life. Us as Christians actually means Christ-like little Christ. So our life is supposed to accurately represent Jesus. We're literally supposed to look like Jesus. The Bible says, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. Galatians 2.20. How cool is that? Jesus lives inside of you. That means you get to live like Jesus lived. Everything that he saw, you get to see and more. Because he literally lives inside of you. So that means you can heal the sick and cast out demons because he did. And he lives inside of you. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So if he could do it, then he can do it now because he's the same because he lives inside of me. Am I right? He lives inside of me and he's the same every day. So some people say, well, not everyone you prayed for gets healed. And I'm like, that's true. But I believe every person I pray for will be healed. I'll explain why. The Bible says, lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. So when I lay my hands on the sick and someone doesn't get healed, I have a choice. Am I going to believe my experience or God's truth? <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's honestly the option though. You either believe your experience or God's truth. And I'm going to live my life until my experience lines up with God's truth. But I'm not going to make a doctrine out of a few experiences that I've had. Because God wants to heal every person. But if it's not lining up, I'm going to keep praying until it does line up. Todd White, who's an amazing evangelist, prayed for 800 people before he saw a healing. I'm not saying it's going to be like that for you, but I'm saying how amazing is that that he was willing to do that? It won't be like that for you. But that's incredible that he was willing to say, even after 700, God still wants to heal. The truth stood out above God. Because when you stand on God's truth, your whole life won't be shaken when things go wrong. And I love that story about, what was your name? Bothwell. Bethwell, close. See, that story about Bethwell, the fact that you in church is such a testimony, and I love that sitting there listening to your testimony, because people believe that when you become a Christian, everything will be perfect. Garbage. Not even biblical. We say, come to church, everything will be perfect. So when Jesus rocks up on the scene, he, he begins to preach a three-chapter sermon. And it, we've called it the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So he preaches these amazing truths that if we plant our life on, it will change us forever. And at the end of the Beatitudes, he says this. He says, if you build your house on these beliefs, your house will be like, your house will be like a house built on the rock. So when the storms of life come, they won't be blown over. Even Jesus said you'll have storms of life. You'll have storms in life. But they won't affect you anymore. The fact that you in church is such a testimony. Because the storms come, but you know God's good, so you aren't blown over. If your beliefs aren't based on the Word, your whole life will crumble under, through one experience, and suddenly, God, where are you? It's because you weren't seeking God and everything was going well. 
There's a rapper I like that said, it's hard for God to answer prayers when nobody's praying to Him. We only, sometimes we only act like we need God when things go wrong. And that's because we aren't building our house on a rock foundation when things are going right. Because you need to be ready for when the storms of life come. Because if you believe that God will always provide for you regardless, when things financially go wrong in your house, you won't be depressed or hurt. Because you don't trust your bank account for money. See, God, when you ask God for money, He's not checking His bank account to see whether you, He can do it. But so often we put our faith in our bank account more than God. What I mean by that is this. I say, Chanel, do you want to come on a trip with me to America? Majority of people would say, let me check my bank account first. Instead of saying, let me ask God. Because if God says yes, he'll provide the money. That's not a problem, am I right? But often we put our faith more in these earthly things, and that's why we need to renew our mind so that our life is built on the rock. Because we have to live a life like that if we want to invite other people into this life. We have to believe we're righteous if we want to preach the gospel. And this is why. If you don't believe you're righteous, you won't want to preach the gospel. When I lived in shame and condemnation, I'd never go, Hey bro, God loves you. You should be a Christian. You can live in shame and condemnation the rest of your life. We would never do that. So that's why when you don't believe you're righteous, and you believe you're going to struggle in sin the rest of your life, you won't want to share the gospel. Be a Christian. You can be ensnared in sin for the rest of your life. And now because you know God, you can live in shame too. Right? I would never want to invite someone into that. So that's why it says the righteous are as bold as lions. Righteousness is key to evangelism. When you believe you're right with God, I don't need anybody to treat me any way for me to love them. Because I'm right with God. I don't need affirmation from someone to feel good about myself. I'm here to love them because I know I'm right with God. That's why the righteous are as bold as lions. I'm going to come to an end. And like a real end. Not one of those preacher's ends. You know? Preachers, like when me and Chanel were flying back from Cape Town, the plane's coming down literally like five meters before the ground. This big wind comes up. And they had to like take off again. It was super serious. But sometimes that's how church feels, right? The preacher just keeps tricking you into the runway. Up again. Bring it around. Down. Up again. Alan, are you one of those preachers? Because lots of them laughed. Is Alan one of those? No? Okay. Good, Alan. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read us Mark 16. And it's going to start in verse... Mark 16, 16. And I know this is a verse we've all read, so I want you to just keep your minds open right now. I know this message is very simple. It's not high and lofty, but that's good because we have to live out the simple things. The Bible in, in 1 Corinthians says that, Paul says, I'm worried that you'd be deceived from the simplicity of the gospel as Eve was deceived. Sometimes we can make the gospel so complicated when it's really not. Like my prayer is, when I get to heaven, that God, I don't think God's going to say to me, hey, bro, you really, your eschatology was on point. How I came back was really accurate. You know, what you believed. I think he's going to say, did you love people? Did you live out Mark 16? I don't want to be, but God, did you hear the revelation I had about Hebrews? He's going to say, but did you love people? Did you live out Mark 16? And there's no condemnation for anyone here that hasn't been living it like that because that was me for many years. But there's so much freedom in making a choice to change. So Mark 16 verse 16 says this, But he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Thank you, Lord. But he who does not believe will be condemned. So I used to see that and say, Okay, so what 
makes someone saved? What makes someone a believer? He who believes and baptizes will be saved. So Christianity to me was, okay, if I believe in God, right, if I believe that God's real, even though the Bible in James says that even the demons believe God's real. So don't forget that Christianity isn't just believing in God. I'll explain in a second. It literally says you believe in God, you do well, even the demons believe that. So if you say just believing in God makes you a Christian, then demons are Christians, which they definitely aren't. Am I right? If you believe in God and are baptized, you'll be saved. And I used to read that, not ever reading the next verse. So this is, the next verse, put it up there, because this is what is very convicting. And these signs will follow those who believe. So if you believe and you baptize, the sign of you believing are all these things following your life. You with me? If you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. This is what believe means. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. Isn't that convicting? And more. There's more. I mean, some of those don't apply. It's hard to find a serpent. Hard to drink something deadly. And they'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. But isn't that amazing? That says, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. And this is what a believer actually is. So it actually explains to us. So someone who those signs follow them and are baptized, that's Christianity. Very convicting, but it's true. And it should make you excited to say, okay, there's more for me. There's more for my life. I Think about waking up tomorrow and being excited to see a miracle you've never seen before. Then life gets exciting. I don't wake up dreading work on a Monday anymore. Monday shouldn't be the worst day of the week. You should be so excited that you finally get to lay hands on your workers again. I'm serious. We can wake up in the morning and be excited because if we're going to say we believe, those signs have to follow us. I don't blame the world for not wanting a powerless church. If, if you came to my restaurant, you said, can I have a burger? And it was a burger joint, and I said, I don't have burgers. You're like, okay, well, do you have chips? No, sorry, we're out. Well, what about a milkshake? No, sorry, we actually don't have anything that's on our menu. You wouldn't want to go there. But us as the church, if we believe in a powerful God that works in signs and wonders and has peace and has love, and we don't walk in that, I don't blame people for not wanting to come. Am I right? I want to live out what I'm preaching so that people look at my life and say, I want that. South Africa is the only nation in the world. And I'll finish with this thought. There we go, up again. <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only nation in the world, I promise, because I get to travel a lot. The only nation I've been to. That if you just step out and pray for someone, regardless of the result, they will ask you what church do you go to and want to come to your church. Only place have ever experienced it. And this is why, because everyone in South Africa says they're a Christian. A lot. But not very many actually have the signs following them. So when someone on the streets actually sees someone living it out, they say, what church do you want to go to? Because they want to see that. And all it starts with is just you stepping out and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be controlled by fear anymore. I'm not going to say fear is a part of my identity. I'm going to make a choice to put people's eternity above who I am. I'm going to say, if I abide in him, I'm going to live like he lives. I'm going to bring people into an encounter with Jesus. I'm going to stop letting the roofs hold me back. I want to see people encounter God. I'm going to make space for people to come in. And my life is going to be a life of bringing people into an encounter with Jesus. When we can do that, we'll see lasting change. Because revival isn't this thing that's far off. Revival is just you saying yes to that verse we just read. If you want revival, you can live in it tomorrow. And revival happens when all of you start living in it together. Am I right? Can I pray for you? Would you mind if I prayed for everyone? Can you guys stand for me?
Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come right now, that you would move upon us, that you would come with great power. We need you, God. Holy Spirit, we need you more. We need more of you. You said you called yourself the helper, which means that we need help, God. God, take us out of our comfort zones. God, empower us to actually walk out of our comfort zones, Lord. Teach us how to surrender to yourself, Holy Spirit. Teach us how to, teach us how to walk with you. Your word says the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Lord, I ask that you would yield us to your voice. Yield us to your Spirit. Use us as a people that can lead people into an encounter with your love. Let us become a walking encounter with your love, God. God, I ask through this church that many would be saved, God. Many would be discipled and brought into the kingdom. That through this church, they would have a lasting impact on this area. In Jesus' name. I just felt a word for the church. You guys can keep standing. I felt like God was saying that He's going to start drawing people into this church. And the church is on a journey. That God's taking this church on a journey into new things. And He's just saying, just get ready for the new things that are coming. He, he, he's pouring out a new wine. He's going to start speaking to the leadership about what it looks like for this next step in the church. Because I believe that there's going to be great growth in this church. That God, God's saying, the older generation in this church, it's time for you to start discipling the new generation. The younger generation is looking for mothers and fathers who can disciple them. And, and He wants to use you. God wants to use you. But are you willing to make space? Are you willing to say, okay, let's look outside. What do we need to change? What do we need to change to make space for the younger generation? I don't want the broken looking at the church and saying there's no space for me. I believe God is going to make space. He's going to speak to you about how to get new people in here, how to get the next generation in here. And this church will be a great example of what it looks like to merge two generations together, to have the fire of the young people and the wisdom of the older and both learning from each other. And both walking out both sides of the old people walking on fire. The young people in wisdom and on fire. But this church is going to be an example of what it looks like to merge generations. And I believe God's saying, what extent are you willing to go to to make space for the next generation? What extent are you willing to change to make space for the next generation?